As G.K. Chesterton said, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Here on Swimming Upstream, we go against the cultural stream by championing life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. Your host is Eric Sammons, author of seven books, including Holiness for Everyone, The Old Evangelization, and Bitcoin Basics. Now let's get swimming. Hello and welcome to episode 82 of Swimming Upstream. I'm Eric Sammons. Last week I was uh, honored to be on the Taylor Marshall Show and we talked about the 10 reasons to attend the Latin Mass. It was a fun episode. I'll put a link to it. It was on YouTube. I'll put a link to it in the show notes so you can watch it or listen to it at your leisure. But one of the 10 reasons I had might have been a little bit different for most people to hear. They might not have expected it, and I didn't go into it too much because the episode was already an hour and a half even with just the going through them briefly. But that was the clear gender distinctions that are found in the Latin Mass. And what I meant by that was simply that it's very clear men have a very specific role in the liturgy and that women do not have the same role that the men do in that. And I'll talk about that more in a second. But what I wanted to talk about in this episode, I wanted to go more in depth into that topic, the, the gender distinctions and the liturgy. I think we all know that our current culture has a lot of gender confusion. And really, this has blossomed recently and has become one of the biggest issues in our, cultural, in our culture today. You see Hollywood pushing very much uh, a lot of gender confusion. You see the mainstream media doing this. A lot of big push is happening for gender confusion, meaning you know, men can be women, women can be men, transgenderism, things like that. But really, this started decades ago, and it really started with the uh, feminist movement, the idea that women can be just as good as men in various things and things that were traditionally considered manly things or, or things for men, such as leadership in a company, uh, athletic pursuits, things of that nature. And so women wanted to be able to uh, have the same opportunities, the same ability, they, they claim they, they said they had the same ability to do the things that men do. Now, there is some justification for that. I'm obviously not a feminist, as it's defined by most people today, but at the same time, I would say there was some, uh, there was definitely some discrimination, unjust discrimination against women. There is, by the way, such thing as just discrimination. Discrimination is not always bad. We, we do just discrimination all the time. I discriminated very, very much when I decided who I would marry. I picked only one person, and she fortunately picked me. Still hoping she doesn't uh, realize that that was a big mistake on her part, probably, but it was a great thing for me. The point is that's discrimination. You discriminate, you discriminate every day whenever you choose all the things you choose, uh, what clothes you're going to wear, you discriminate what job you're going to take, uh, things of that, what car you're going to get. And you discriminate people as well, people you're going to hang out with, people you aren't going to hang out with. You don't spend the same amount of time with every single person. So discrimination is not always a bad thing. But there is such a thing as unjust discrimination, such as when two candidates are equally qualified and the boss picks the uh, Caucasian candidate instead of the African-American candidate. And let's say the African-American candidate is actually a little more qualified. Well, that's unjust discrimination. Likewise, women were being unjustly discriminated against uh, decades ago, 1950s and before, things like that. 
And so there was a push. However, as usually happens in these cases, when the pendulum swings one way, when it swings back the other way, it goes too far. So the pendulum obviously was too far on the side of unjust discrimination against women. But then it swung back the other way too far and to the point where we, we ended up blurring the roles between men and women. That there was no difference between them. The idea that they're essentially identical, that there's no real biological or natural difference between men and women became a very common thought among people in our culture. And really in that way, the feminists were very successful in doing that. However, there is a difference between men and women. There is a difference. Men are more suited for certain things. Women are more suited for other things. One example of how silly this became was in the 1970s, there was that battle of the sexes, that tennis match, which was Billie Jean King against, I don't know, some washed up guy. That was actually the point. It's, it's a woman at the height of her abilities in tennis against a man who was basically a washed up and, and had been, hadn't played in years man. And when the woman won, that was supposedly showing that men and women are equal. But of course, it wasn't a fair situation. Take the best woman in the world against the best man in the world and then see what happens. And obviously, it doesn't mean uh, that just because women may not be good at certain things doesn't mean that they're not better than some men. For example, if I played Serena Williams in tennis today, that match would last approximately however long it takes for her just to whip a bunch of serves right by me because I would have no chance whatsoever. She would destroy me. And so it's not to say that certain women aren't better than men at, at things that men are traditionally better at. But in, on a whole, if you say, for example, in basketball, if you have men play against women, the best women in the world, let's take the best women in the world against the best men in the world, the men would crush them. And that's not some discrimination. That's not something saying something against women. It just means that in that area of life, men are more well-suited than, than women. Just like, you know, for example, in the military, men are more well-suited than, than women are to fighting. And, but there's other things that women are much more well-suited for than men. Most of these are things that are not valued today is the problem. For example, emotional strength, empathy. Things like that just simply aren't valued in today's world. And so what happens is, is that it appears that women are denigrated because the things they're good at are actually denigrated. That's what really happens is we're denigrating valuable traits that women have and acting like they, that they're not important. And instead we're saying women need to have all these exact traits that men have. We see this especially in pop culture, for example, in movies and TV. Whenever a movie wants to represent a woman as a strong character, a strong woman, they essentially write her as a man. You see this, for example, in the, um, the superhero movies, for example, uh, Black Widow, in Star Wars with Rey, uh, things of that nature. What, Captain Marvel, it looks like that's what's going to be the case with that movie. I haven't seen it yet, so maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. But you have women who are, the, the reason they're strong is because they act like men and they have physical strength. They're, you know, Cap, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Black Widow is the best example. She has no superpowers. And if you look at her, the, the actress who plays her, Scarlett Johansson, is this thin, very lightweight person who probably couldn't lift, you know, 100 pounds if you paid her a million dollars. Yet she's able to, in hand to hand combat, beat the top assassins and military men in the world that are, you know, bulked up and strong. And there's just no way that's actually possible in real life. Remember, she has no superpowers. But it's to show that she's a strong woman by giving her physical strength. Because movies can't 
it's a lot harder, I should say, for a movie to demonstrate empathetic strength, for example, than it is physical strength. It's very easy to show physical strength. And so to show a strong woman, you just basically show her as physically strong. One example of a character from long ago that a woman character that I thought did a very good job of presenting her as a woman, as a strong woman, without turning her into a man, was Princess Leia from Star Wars. With Princess Leia, we had a situation where she's clearly a woman. She got, you know, got rescued by the men, which would never happen today because that'd be considered sexist. But she was the glue that kept the rebellion together. She didn't do it because she beat up a bunch of people. Yeah, she could fire a, a, a blaster if she had to, and, and, and when the time came up, and there's, you know, obviously that's good. A, a woman could always do that. But she didn't engage in hand-to-hand combat. She wasn't a Jedi Knight or anything like that. She, she wasn't you know, beating up stormtroopers. But she was probably, I'd say she was, the most important person in the entire rebellion. It falls apart without her. Why? Because she's the emotional center of it. And so there's an example of actually doing a good job. Back before, I mean, it was 1970s, so it had started, but we hadn't got the huge push that you can't show women in anything other than physically strong situations like men. And so what's happened, though, with all that, that's kind of a digression, but the point of all that is that we got to the point in our culture where you were not allowed to acknowledge there was any differences between men and women at all. That men were just as good as women at certain at everything, and men, women were just as good at everything that men were. But that's a lie, because men are better than women at certain things, and women are better than men at certain things. They're different. That's great. We like that. <laughs> now, what's happened, though, in recent years is that's morphed in a very odd way that I think a lot of feminists are probably uncomfortable, uncomfortable with. And that is the idea that now men can declare themselves to be women... And women can declare themselves to be men, you know, transgenderism. What this does, though, this is, I mean, there's no better way to put this than to say that being transgender is a mental illness, period. Because what it is, is it's a person saying that something that is not true is true. It's somebody denying the reality in front of them. Whenever this happens normally, in past times, there can, somebody is considered that something's wrong with them mentally. If, for example, I start saying on this podcast, I am Julius Caesar. I am Julius Caesar reincarnated, and I am alive today. I'm going to take over. I'm going to reestablish the Roman Empire. If I really meant that, I need help. I probably need medication. I need counseling because I'm not seeing reality as it actually is. The same thing is true for a man who claims he is a woman or vice versa. I know we're not allowed to say that, but that's the reality. And so this idea that we can declare things that are not true to be true, that are obviously not true to be true, that has far-reaching consequences. Because then all of a sudden, all of reality comes into question. Everything that we think we know, we may not know, and not in good ways, but in bad ways. I don't even necessarily know that this, this desk that I'm sitting at right now is actually here. This is what I would consider transgenderism is ultimate nominalism. It takes nominalism to its most extreme but yet logical conclusion. What is nominalism, real quick? I want to make sure I'm clear on that, that everybody's clear on that. There's a philosophy that developed during the Middle Ages. It comes from uh, the Latin root. It, it comes from name. And it's the idea that basically you can name something and, it, and that's what it is. And it really, what it 
the, the biggest belief in it is that God, he makes something true by declaring it to be. He makes something good because he declares it to be. Something isn't good just by its very essence, and God is, you know, recognizing that as good because, because it is. Instead, it's God says it's good, therefore it is. So if God wanted to say that stealing was good, then it would be good. That's what anomalists would think. If he wanted to declare murder to be good, it would be good. If he wanted to declare uh, faithfulness or uh, loving kindness or anything like that to be bad, then it would be. And obviously that's, that's just ludicrous. But that became very popular, the idea of nominalism, maybe not explicitly, but it infected, I should say, how people saw things. We see the biggest example of this is in Martin Luther, how he uh, viewed salvation, justification, I should say. He viewed justification as God declaring a sinner to be righteous, not making a sinner righteous, but declaring a sinner to be righteous. And so his famous example is that he was like a dung heap that's covered over by snow. So people, when they see it, 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 looks, it looks clean and white. But underneath, it's still a dung heap. It's still a pile of crap. Now, of course, the Catholic view of justification is that God actually makes somebody righteous, that he changes that person from being an unrighteous sinner to a righteous disciple of Christ, a righteous son of God, image of God. But nominalism, which is basically what Luther was embracing, would just say, well, just declaring it is all that matters. It doesn't actually change it. And, of course, that's what a transgender person is doing. A a man who says he is a woman is saying, I am a woman. And by declaring it, it's now true. And we're not allowed to challenge it. We're not allowed to say, no, it's not true. But that's just simply insanity. That's a mental illness. Now, one thing to be clear is somebody who, who, is trans, who says they're transgender, said they're, they're, they're uh, the gender they're really not, they, they need help, not scorn. When I say something is a mental illness, I'm trying to make it clear that it's not necessarily their fault in the sense of it's a freely chosen path that they took. More than likely, it's because of some type of some events that have happened in their life, perhaps uh, chemical problems in their in their brain, things of that nature that have led to this. But the idea that our culture has accepted transgenderism is that's normal, and we're and we're supposed to say that's normal, shows how awful this the gender confusion has become, and how it has far-reaching consequences beyond gender confusion. But that's the most obvious one right now. You know, recently, I think it was just this week or last week, a transgender candidate was uh, in the Miss Universe pageant. And he, not she, but he was in this contest. I don't have no idea how he did. And we're supposed to laud this as some great thing when really it's sad. That's what it really is. It's sad. I don't get angry or scared when a transgendered person explains that they're really a man or really a woman or whatever, I'm, I'm sad for them. There's pity because obviously something is wrong with the way they see reality, and that's not a good thing. That's not something I would wish upon my worst enemy. I want people to see things for how they actually are. So we have a lot of gender confusion in the world. I think that's obvious. Now, what does this have to do with the liturgy? You know, I, I titled this episode Gender Distinctions and the Liturgy. What in the world does all this I've talked about so far have to do with the liturgy? Well, let's talk about the Catholic Church and how it has uh, 
been in the culture for the past few decades. I think it's pretty non-controversial to say that the Catholic Church has become more and more like the culture over the, past, over the decades since Vatican II. In fact, a lot of proponents of Vatican II and, and what happened after it would say that that's a good thing, that that's exactly the point of Vatican II, is that we want to be more like the culture so that we can, let's give it the best reading we can, so that it can, so we, the church can evangelize better. Because if we're not like the culture, people won't understand us. We'll seem like a foreign entity. We'll seem like an alien race. So we want to be more like the, the culture. We want to embrace the culture as much as we can so that, that people can uh, be more comfortable with us and, and, and come to become Catholic. That's, that's the argument. Of course, we've seen that the, the number of people who become Catholic has dramatically decreased. Tons of people have left the church, more importantly, and just it, it just hasn't happened. But I would also say that even those who would argue that that's a good thing, that we embrace the, the church embraces the culture more, I would say it's obviously gone too far in a lot of ways. We are desperately, as a church, desperately trying to catch up with the culture all the time. We're always about five years behind, it seems like. Maybe or when you consider our liturgical music about 30 or 40 years behind because we seem stuck in the 1970s when it comes to music. But we're, we're just, and the only reason we're behind it really is kind of inertia and, and, hanging, and, and a tradition that's kind of hanging on. But I think a lot of people would embrace it fully. We see this most, most clearly in gender roles in the liturgy. Starting after Vatican II with the new mass, we saw a big push to include women in a lot more roles because Vatican II called for an active participation of the faithful. Active participation was interpreted to mean that you were doing something. You were bringing up gifts. You were reading. You were in the sanctuary somehow doing something. Now, again, active participation in the liturgy is actually a good thing. And there's nothing wrong with calling for active participation. The problem is the definition of what that means. Somebody who is in the pew saying nothing but intently concentrating on the liturgy and prayer, they are actively participating. Even though, you know, we don't, nobody on the outside sees anything they're doing. That's active participation. That's true active participation. Not necessarily that they're shaking hands with people down the aisle and telling people when they should go for communion and reading from the readings and all that stuff. And having the 400 different women come up for uh, the Eucharistic minister, extraordinary Eucharistic ministers that aren't so extraordinary anymore. But the point is, is that all these roles began to be opened up to women. More roles were created, first of all. I mean, obviously the priests used to do and the altar servers used to do everything. Now there's so many more roles. But women started to do them more and more. And so now we have a situation where women actually dominate the sanctuary in most parishes. By the way, I just want to make sure it's clear where sanctuary is. The sanctuary is the part where the altar is and where the, the priest sits up there. Used to be there would be a, a clear altar rail between the sanctuary and the rest of the church. I think the rest of the church we call the nave. I'm blanking a little bit on the name of that. I think that's you know where the congregation sits. I believe it's called the nave. And so anyway, in the sanctuary, what I'm talking about, in, in my old Protestant days, we called the whole church the sanctuary, but that's not correct. But now we see women dominate the sanctuary because other than the priest, they, you know, we have altar girls, we have women doing the readings, we have women as Eucharistic ministers, and it's most common that the majority of these things are done by women. And so it's not unheard of that you have a situation in which you might have 20 people in the sanctuary during a Mass and only one of them is a man, or maybe only two or three total are men. 
I believe this sends subconscious signals to the congregation that there is no difference between men and women. There are no difference in roles for men and women. Again, different does not mean that they are one is better, one that wor- is worse. It literally just means different. They're different. I'm different from my wife. I don't think I'm better than my wife. I actually think the opposite, but um, she's different from me. But we're sending this subconscious signal to the congregation, so everybody going to Mass, to Catholics, that there is no distinction between men and women. They are basically the same. And we saw, of course, a lot of people have taken up the logical conclusion of this is, well, why can't women be priests then? If they can do everything else, why can't they be priests? We see, though, in the Latin Mass, in which only men are allowed in the sanctuary, that it keeps the distinctions. And so it's very obvious, if you grow up going to a Latin Mass, you know in your mind that men and women are different. It's just embedded into your brain that men and women are different. And that's a good thing. You want that to be embedded into your brain because they are different. Not one is better than the other, but that they are different. Now, let's be honest. There's no reason why that can't also be true of the ordinary form of the Mass, the new Mass, the Novus Ordo. Because there's no rules that state in the new Mass, you have to have women in the sanctuary. That's just something that all parishes have basically succumbed to under pressure from a small number of people over time. But the reality is that in almost every situation in which you celebrate the new Mass, if there are, are lay people involved, that, then women are, are, are very dominantly involved. Now, another point is, you might say, well, you only see men. Doesn't that kind of say that men are better in spiritual matters? No. What it says is men are leaders in spiritual matters. And this is true. This is a hard truth that people might not want to accept, but men are called to be spiritual leaders in their family, in the church, and in society. As a father, I am called to be the head, the priest of my domestic church, my family. And that includes my wife. So as the husband, I am called to be the head of the household. We, we want to ignore what St. Paul says in Ephesians about the man being the head of the woman and head of the family, but it's true. But if you read closer and you actually read, you know, understand what Paul is saying, he also says that the man must love his wife as Christ loved the church. Well, what did Christ do for the church? He died for the church. He sacrificed his entire life. So if I'm not willing as a husband to give up my life completely, not only just in martyrdom, but in white martyrdom of giving up what I want to do each day, giving up my desires for the sake of the family, for the sake of my wife, then I'm not, call, then I'm not being a good head of the church either. But my point here is that men are called to be spiritual leaders. And so if we don't have any men up in the sanctuary, or we only have one man in the case of just the priest, then what happens is, is that people start to blur that distinction as well. They don't see that men are called to be these spiritual leaders. Men are called to be these spiritual leaders. Now, I want to make something clear. It's not a matter of that women can do something, because obviously women can be just as good as men as being altar boys, being lectors, being Eucharistic ministers, what have you. In fact, I would claim that most girls are probably better than boys at being altar boys because they, they altar servers, because they have a better, they have a higher um, concentration, ability to concentrate than, than boys do of that age. But that's not the point of it. You're not doing it because it's not a utilitarian decision. Okay, who does this best? It's a matter of the roles and what it's leading to. Altar boys, the point of that is to be a farm system for the priesthood. And since women are not called to be priests, then there's no reason for them to be altar girls either. And, you know, it, it's, there are certain things that men can't do either. Men aren't able to do. A man cannot bring a child into the world. 
And a woman cannot bring the Eucharist into the world. That is not, that is not saying one is better than the other. It's, it, it's a natural discrimination. I just simply cannot give birth to a, uh, a baby. It's just not possible biologically. I can't do anything about that. I can complain. I can scream at the wind. I can, I can go crazy, but it's not going to make it true. Likewise, with the Eucharist, consecrating the Eucharist, only a man can do that. And only a man who's, who's ordained as a priest, I can't do that either. I mean, it's not like the priesthood is for every man. There's a very small percentage of men who are actually called to the priesthood. So we're, we're, what should be clear is here that I'm saying the liturgy is a way in which it subconsciously evangelizes a certain view. I don't think the purpose of the Mass is to evangelize. That is more of a side benefit. The purpose of the Mass is to give worship to God. But it does evangelize subconsciously because what it does is it, 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 it infects you with a certain worldview, a certain way of looking at things, including how we look at men and women and, their, and the differences between the genders. And so having only men serve at the altar tells the people subconsciously week in week out that men are spiritual leaders or at least called to be spiritual leaders and we should require them we should challenge them to be spiritual leaders because that's the other result of this because yes we might think that oh it's great women are more involved but what it's done is it's kicked the men out and so we have a crisis today where men are not willing to stand up and be those spiritual leaders they're called to be like i said how christ is supposed to you know we're supposed to be like christ with our families and love our wives and our children as christ loves the church well men have abdicated that as well we see so many men who have abdicated their responsibilities as husbands as fathers as spiritual leaders and i think that's part of that is because the culture has said you're not really supposed to say that anymore. You're not supposed to say you're, you're called to be a spiritual leader because anybody can do it. So as a, as a man, don't bother. And so it's put men on the silence. It's why you have women are much more involved in church today than women are. I'm sorry. Women are much more involved in church today than men are. You know what, what one religion has a lot of a, a higher, one of the highest rates of masculine involvement? It's Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And if you notice, they also have a liturgy that is very strongly masculine in the sense that the, the only men are allowed to serve at the altar. It's, a very, it's very attractive to men. It's, it's basically like the Latin Mass in the East. It, you know, it's not said the same, but it's the same idea, the same ethos behind it. And because of that, you have a much higher percentage of male participation in Eastern Orthodoxy. I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think their liturgy and their rate of male participation is is unrelated to each other so what i'm saying here today is i believe the catholic church needs to resist this move to blur the lines between men and women we've already given in a lot but i think we need to return to this idea that yes men and women are different and that's a great thing we we are encouraging our our women to be the the the, the spiritual heart of the family while the man is a spiritual head of the family there's a difference in those roles I know my family, without my wife as the, the, the spiritual heart, we would be nowhere near uh, where we are today. I mean, we have a long way to go as always, but I need her to be the spiritual heart while I'm the spiritual head. If we're competing to be the spiritual head, it's going to be chaos. And so what we need is those clear distinctions, and the church needs to teach that. And they need to teach it explicitly, but also teach it through the way that they celebrate the liturgy. Because that would teach our children from a very young age those distinctions between men and women that they desperately need to understand and to accept. 
Okay, well, that's it for today's show. Uh, Just before I leave, I just want to give a reminder. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at Eric R. Sammons or on Facebook. Just look me up, Eric Sammons, Swimming Upstream. That's my public page. You can just search Swimming Upstream as well. Uh, Also, I'd really appreciate if you could rate and review this podcast uh, on um, iTunes. That really helps other people who find out about it. But that's it for today. Like I said, until next time, keep swimming against the stream.